Hey, 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 everybody. What is up? Welcome to another edition of A Powwow with Pops. Coming to you from Gainesville, Florida, uh, the southeasternmost, uh, I would have to say, music town in in the southeast. Uh, we've been doing it for a long time. Um, one of those people who used to be a musician and did all that other stuff and roadied for bands and throughout this time period that I've lived in Gainesville since 94 I was introduced to so many great bands amongst that time period and one of them was a band that on the first tour I roadied on we listened to this this band's first album probably mostly the whole time and today I'm joined by Kim Kinnikin from the band Spark Marker. And thank you so much, Kim, today for joining me. Thank you so much for reaching out and giving me this opportunity to share some uh, some stories and history with you. Um, man, you, you don't you don't get it. it this uh, I just have to explain to you one as a fanboy at the age of forty nine. I I still listen. <laughs> I still listen to this album. The first few albums, like so much, still to this day, and I always have to listen to it because I'm always so surprised about what you all were doing at the time. Uh, I just watched a video from a show you played. It looked like in Washington back in '92. It must I forget where in Washington, but the music you guys were putting out was was during a time where there was a lot of uh, bands like The Promise Ring, uh, The Get Up Kids. You were in that genre, in that area, Hot Water Music, uh, all these other bands that were just starting out right after you guys had already been on the scene, it seems, for a couple years. So what, what, what is your, where, where does your music and your artistry come from? Where did you start at? Like, was this something that you grew up around at home with? Did you grow up in a musical home? Was there, is there something that like led you into the arts and music? Oh, oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, no one played music in my family. That's for sure. Um, but they had records, you know, like, you know, and I, my parents, uh, had married multiple times each. So like I, I had lots of older siblings, um, and my family, so I, I kind of inherited everyone's record collection. Nice. At a young, I was just, I was quite a bit younger than everyone else, so I just um, often would just go through people's books and, and records and just kind of, I was fascinated. I, I didn't really have a concept of like, you know, what was older or what was, what was newer, um, because it was just a hodgepodge of my dad's records and my sister's records uh, for the most part. Um, but it wasn't until like probably grade five, um, uh, my, one of my elementary school teachers was a band teacher and, uh, in a, well, he's a weird teacher to tell you the truth. Um, but, uh, one <laughs> of the things that was great about him was that he, uh, had a music class for his, his, his for his, he did band outside of his, uh, regular class, if that made any sense. Mm -hmm. And I was in his regular class and, uh, so outside of band, in our regular class, he would read books to us that were really, uh, 
he would always say to us, you don't need to read the stuff I'm giving that, that they want you to read. You can read hard, you know, more more interesting stuff than what, what the school board is giving you. Right. If there's interesting books challenge you, uh, let's read those books. And it doesn't matter, you know, it, what you get out of it is what I'll, you know, grade you on. And then free music, he wanted us to, uh, <laughs> we would have an hour every week where we would listen to music. Oh, and wow. he would tape a, uh, write out the lyrics. Uh, and we would all sing along uh, to the songs. And he had a very smooth way of saying in his uh, way uh, that, uh, you know, pop music sucked and was very candy uh, right. bubblegum. <laughs> and, and, and the real music, you know, was a bit harder to listen to and would always push us to listen to things like Led Zeppelin right. um, and us. And so I have this crazy memory. I wish I still had a copy of it of like a whole class singing "Crazy Train" uh, oh, wow. in the class, just for ourselves once a week. We would pick all different kinds of songs that uh, you know we, we could pick them, but he would always kind of push us to do heavier stuff. Oh, and from that, uh, he, he would take people out to concerts uh, and movies um, uh, when something was coming to town, and we would get permission from our parents. And and that's kind of really how I learned about just rock bands like Van Halen and Led Zeppelin and the stories about how they started or what they did. I just became really fascinated with music uh, through the, his storytelling yeah. and his love of, of music. And, and so where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in the suburbs. Well, I grew up all over the place in, Va- in and around Vancouver. When I say around, I mean in the suburbs of Vancouver, British Columbia. Right. So um, at that point, I was in a suburb called North Delta, which... Um, it, you know, uh, for the most part, I know about Vancouver. But uh, interestingly enough, it, 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 when I, uh, that neighborhood, that suburb uh, had an incredible uh, amount of musicians from the punk rock and heavy metal scene of Vancouver. Cool. And it really coalesced during that crossover period of time in the mid 80s uh, in my junior high school where uh, the punks and the metalheads united. And it was, yep. just, it was cool. To listen to hard like to hardcore metal or it was, punk music. It was like that. Was it like that DRI crossover album time period? Uh, it was just before that. Yeah, it was like okay. uh, COC. Um, um, definitely uh, animosity. Um, nice. But uh, <laughs> DRI's uh, first record and seven inch uh, and bands like uh, SNFU uh, mm-hmm. who are Canadian, um, as well as uh, bands like Sacrilege UK. But really, COC and GRI, I mean, I mean, and SNFU, I think, uh, oddly, you know, all the initial bands, I guess, yeah. those were the ones that really, uh, I was a metalhead, you know, coming from the metalhead side, and so uh, the concept of music being not just that aggressive, which I was attracted to, but being so smart um, yeah. and, and intellectual and introducing me to different concepts um, of of things either that I believed in I didn't have a word for, um, you know, whether that be the, you know, words like pacification or, uh, you know, biodegradable or, you know, animosity, COC's animosity and, and, and GRI. I mean, they just really uh, opened my mind up to this underground world that uh, blew me away. And, and from there, I got into maximum rock and roll and started just learning as much as I could about everything I could in that maximum rock and roll magazine in, in, in grade nine. Oh wow! Well, that's. I mean, it seems like we're probably around the same age in the same area for sure. Uh, uh-huh. 
I'm originally from New Hampshire. My great grandmother's from Canada. My family's French Canadian. And oh, wow. Uh, yes. And uh, I was made to move to Florida against my will at the age of six. So uh, <laughs> if it wasn't for punk rock music, uh, I would be driving a GMC dually wearing Durango's and uh, Wranglers right now. So uh, I'm I, definitely thankful I, for the music. <laughs> I think a lot of people are thankful. You know, I think there's a, a point where you, uh, many people have a story where, you know, a, a sort of, punk music a snag of of interest came from out of nowhere and pulled you in to this little world that just opened up you know just the corner and it was you know just magic a pandora's box that was opened that you kind of go like if i had missed that opportunity i can't imagine where i would be now right you know friends of mine that i grew up with i moved around a lot like i said in different suburbs so and, and i would and so i traveled I got to know a lot of people from different um, scenes in Vancouver, like different suburbs, um, and and we uh, some of us, you know, just kind of really, you know, get along, get along with the people we went to school with, but got along, you know, outside of school by going to shows and right. finding that camaraderie, and really saying, you know, God, punk rock saved my life because, um, yeah, I had a rough childhood, you know, and yeah. and and there's definitely a lot of opportunities where, you know, I, I can see where some of the friends I had at different times, uh, we were going down some pretty rough roads, and, and yeah. some of my friends, you know, end up in some really rough places. Uh, when I say my friends, you know, people I was friends with, I would later on see in my life down some really rough places or, or no longer be with us. And Yeah, uh, we've lost a lot of playing. people. Yeah, and, and I, I, I could see that playing out, and punk rock really seemed like a positive place for me to hold on to that, still had the aggression and anger that I held as a teenager, right. but by being able to focus it in a positive way. Had Quick question, because I don't think I've asked this of anybody lately, but that aggression and that feeling, do you still have that today? Ah, uh, that's, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, I, I must. <laughs> right. I like, mean, I, I, I guess, I, I mean, I, I say that, um, you know, I, I'm a very positive and outgoing person, but I'm also, um, I, you know, I, I don't shy away from the darker sides of life. And right. I always myself that uh, I've done a lot of work um, around uh, HIV and harm reduction around drugs. And right I, I've always said that, like, my life is, is affected by everything. And, 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 and it's, it's only a matter of a couple decisions of why I, I ended up not being on the street or being in, in, a, in a horrible position where wow. my life could have gone, you know, yeah. uh, some decisions that, and some positive people I got to hang out with, but you know, it's not far. I'm not removed. I they, they are my, they are my community. Yeah. What was your, um, were you, did you do bands prior to spark marker? Like what was the, what was the, the growth into actually, uh, coming about and coming up with the band spark marker? Like what was the journey? Um, I started doing, uh, like I said, in North Delta, there was uh, lots of local bands, metal and punk bands. Uh, Witches Hammer was this um, death metal band uh, from the metal side, and there was a, a band called Lethal Virus uh, that were in my, from my high school, you know. Nice. Um, 
and uh, they uh, played shows, and, and, and I learned about zines. And so once I learned about zines in grade nine, I was like, I can do a zine. I, right. I really like being creative. And um, I put out some zines, and then I did a compilation tape, like all within the same year, like a zine, and then I did a compilation tape called Cryptic Compost. My zine was called COH, and, uh, and it always changed. COH always meant something different every issue. <laughs> and by the end of grade 10, um, you know, bands were playing our suburbs continuously because we were such a strong scene, and there was an all, we found a venue. Some, not me. Some of my my my, my um, most of my friends were a year older than me. They found a you know a scout hall with different yep. shows on it. You know, so they could do so. Oh, actually, not scout hall, but through the scouts, they were able to rent it. Uh, it was called Kennedy Hall, and um, we they brought bands like accused. They tried to bring the band accused. It got shut down. But all these local <laughs> bands played. Mission of Christ played. We're from Victoria, which is where I'm living now. Yeah. And uh, and this local band Fratricide played. And so, you know, at some point it was like I had to, I worked at a factory. My dad worked at a bread factory, and I, I was working part-time there and got, I got way too much money uh, being paid some union wage of some sort. <laughs> um, and uh, I was like, hey, you know what, let's, let's put a record out. You know, I was like, yeah, my, a friend of mine, Corey Uzak, he and I said, let's put our mind together and put a record out. And so uh, we put a split record out called Fratricide and Mission of Christ on our record label called Final Notice Records. Oh, wow. That was when I was just at the end of grade 10. So what and, year was that uh, about? Pardon me? What year about? What year was that about? Uh, well, if I was going to grade uh, 11, I must have been 16. So 70, uh, 87, 87, oh, wow. I guess, okay. 86. Right on. Yeah, yeah and um, wow. that just you know, opened up a whole door of more, you know, record trading, and I did more zines, um, and um, and uh, that's interesting because Mission of Christ would almost get signed from Metal Blade Records, and there's a long story. Uh, the guitar player <laughs> from Mission of Christ, uh, there's two guitar players. One was in the band The Neos. I don't know if you remember them. They were like a seminal hardcore yeah. band from Victoria. Uh, and the other guitar player was uh, Steve McBean, who is now in Black Mountain. Oh, sure. Um, so, uh, and uh, and then Corey started putting out records himself on his own record label. He put out a Diddly Squat 7-inch, which uh, oh. eventually uh, uh, the bass player would be, you know, in um, multiple bands, but eventually in the Foo Fighters, Nate Mendel. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, we, we were... It's, it's interesting to look back at that. We didn't know any of that place, any of that stuff was going on or where it would lead to. But uh, from my experience in doing that, what I learned was I was sitting on records in my basement in my parents' house. My parents moved in with my dad and we just had a basement. I just had records that didn't sell because bands didn't go on tour outside of Vancouver. Right. And this is how it comes up to me being in a band. I was like, you know what? Um, I want to put out music that I like, but no one in this town is playing the music that I like, so um, why don't I start playing guitar and learning to play guitar and start playing the music I like, because people aren't playing the music I like right. uh, here. I hear it elsewhere, because I, you know, I have my world, world is open to world music around the world, um, and I just kind of started jamming with some friends, uh, this is after high school, um, after I was, I had already put out a couple more records of bands that didn't tour. Onion House. I did put out a Flag Camp 7-inch, and uh, I'm trying to think what else I put out at that time. Um, with, uh, a local band's record, where you know, I learned I, I learned a lot about putting records that didn't sell. And what I learned was 
the bands didn't tour. Um, they weren't going to go anywhere. And I had all the skills and know-how on how to put records out and how to get stuff out there. I just needed a band. And I said, why don't I just be that band and, and start that band? And got some of my friends together that I met at a record store uh, in downtown Vancouver and said, let's just do it, guys. We can make music. Let's just do it. Like, we will get good in time. And what? we sucked. Long time. What? So. What was it, because I don't know if anybody's asked you this, but what do you think it is that made you hit so hard in the U.S. amongst a lot of the bands that were touring at that time, like the younger bands, like the Promise Rings, or like all these bands knew about you guys, and you're from Canada, and you seem to have done your touring throughout you know, the U.S., and I actually... I was somebody told me you guys played the utility house here in Gainesville one time years back. We did play we did play like Bar's house. Yeah, yep. Yep, yep. I can't remember I just remember we played their house. Yeah. Like no idea was a real I, I mean I remember with no idea it was just like a zine basically. Yep. But yeah, we played the house. Yeah, I've heard that story and everybody's always it's funny cuz you talked I mean you know, like I talked to my old friends and that show happened like not too long before I moved to Gainesville, which I kicked myself. I wish I would have caught it because, unfortunately, I was never able to catch you guys live. Um, oh, okay. So it was something that I was like, damn, like, I wonder, like, I was, because you know, there's always one dude with, like, a video camera, right, you know, at a show, especially the back then. But nobody, I can't find anyone with a video of that show, unfortunately, but I'm still working on it. There might be somebody out there. It was incredibly hot, and I think that was our first. That was definitely our first tour to the to the East Coast. I never knew. <laughs> I, I, I never knew how humid it could be, um, and I'm really spoiled. It's really, really moderate. I know it rains a lot out here, and people complain about the what the temperature is really moderate. Um, and yeah. so I, I never experienced the humidity and heat of Florida before. It gets I, fucking stupid. It gets fucking stupid hot down here. Yes. <laughs> it was crazy because we. We played that show, and obviously we, you know, met Var, and uh, we put a seven-inch out on on on, on uh, No Idea Records. Yeah. And unlike any other, I mean, you said some very complimentary things about people knowing who we were, but I mean, honestly, no one came to our shows. We, really? We, we, I mean, maybe I think as a seamster, being a seamster, yeah. and you know, doing lots of tape trading, and I was I was a very big networker. I was one of those. You know, the kids in the scene that would, you know, was knew what was going on. I was on the pulse of what was happening right. in my city. I was just, you know, whenever things came about, I would know when bands were coming to town or be doing tape trading and stuff and would throw my stuff in there. Um, and I, I think that perseverance helped. But when we when we played, obviously we impressed people enough for VAR to put a 7-inch out. Um, Florida, Florida just loved us. And we never really, I don't know if we really got played there one more not one more time i think yeah and um i, I don't even know if we played gamesville again i think we, i know we anyway I, I'm, I'm mixing it all up but all i know is florida was the furthest place for us to tour tour at tour two and it was like we always had people saying come to florida people would phone us up saying come to florida if you yeah. do i want to record on a master your record i do this like people just loved us in florida and we're like what the why does Florida love us? That's amazing. You're the furthest away from us. And I know, there's right? some 
and I love how that works. And it doesn't make any sense. Well, I think you guys at the time did something that a lot of bands didn't do at the time, which was, and I don't mean to say this in a negative way, but copy Fugazi too much. Okay. Like, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like you guys weren't, you guys didn't seem to be affected by Fugazi as much as American bands did at the time. And so I think a lot of the early emo bands had a lot of like a little bit of Fugazi in them. And you guys uh-huh. were so to the different spectrum to me than Fugazi. Like, like you, the sound that you did was so different than anything that I had heard in the U.S. at the time, and there were bands like Mineral, Jawbreaker, uh, what Jawbox, you know, like Minor Threat. I mean, everything, everything you probably have listened to and loved as much as I have, and yet you guys were still able to pull off your own sound without, like, and and still creating something that like really pulled people in and you said it's funny because like florida people loved it it's because florida people are fucking we're all weirdos down here you know like i mean i mean that's, that's a good thing <laughs> yeah it's i mean that's i mean that's like punk rock floridians are weirdos as shit man we love we we, we appreciate good art we appreciate good music we 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 praise it it is our religion i mean it's my religion music is it is something that it has saved me my whole life in every bad situation that I've been in. And and the the best part of it is is I was lucky enough to have you guys as part of my soundtrack as I was growing up and 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 using your songs and what you had this what you what you were sharing with us and you could feel it. Like you can feel it through the recording. Like it was something that didn't seem like you guys slammed it down. I mean, if you can feel what you're portraying through the record, and I think that's what people appreciated so much. Oh, those are very, very kind words. I, I, I mean, it's really. Uh, that, I mean, that's really nice to say. I hear because, like, you know, uh, we were not a we were not a successful band. I mean, God. You're, you're doing interviews with Jawbox. I mean, that band influenced me. We, we played with them a bunch of times, but I mean, you know, like yeah, but they, I, I, but they know who really, you are too. So that's well, the yeah, thing. Like they, they so, you're one of those that bands was, that bands that people are like, holy shit, that's a huge band. Yeah, but those bands like you guys. That's what's fucking awesome. Is that yeah? That's the nice I, I, yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to. I mean, it's, that was a really weird period of time of music, and I think we were in a really weird place being from Canada. And when I say that, I mean that maybe we had a different view of things, right? Or how we looked at things. And, um, you know, I we toured, we we played New York and recorded in New York specifically because no one knew the kind of music even close to that we were trying to sound like in Vancouver. I mean, right. No Means No were amazing. I love No Means No. I have <laughs> lots of respect for TOA in Vancouver, but those bands do not sound anything like what we wanted to sound like. Yeah. And uh, kind of going back to what you're talking about, being Florida being a lot of weirdos, is we, we were a band that um, 
we weren't all friends listening to the same music. Actually, yeah. we all were, a bunch of us worked at a record store, and I, I said, "Hey, why don't we start a band? Do you play drums?" And you and I convinced Mind to sing. I wanted to, but I was like I need someone to play guitar, so I'll play guitar. So who's and, John Cusack and who's Jack Black? No, I'm joking. You guys, <laughs> <laughs> the high fidelity guys started a band and it became Sparkmarker. <laughs> no. Is. It's like we just wanted to do something, and and we all came from different places with right. some, some crossover. But like, I mean, Rob was a real metalhead. Like, I mean, a real metalhead. Wow. I used to like, well, and like it was way more into like Discord music. Right. And you know, um, Ryan came from a small town, moved to Vancouver, and I was just introducing him to everything that was you know coming through Vancouver and. And he liked the Clash and had heard of Fugazi, and I said, "You look, you've heard of Fugazi? Fuck, you should be in a band with me." And he had just heard of Fugazi the day before, and I think just the name popped in his head because he had it on a tape. And I was like, "You know who the fuck Fugazi is? You're fucking hanging out with me, man!" Like, because back then, I, I don't think people realized, like, especially in a place like Vancouver, if you came to my, if you, if you were, if you were on vacation with your family and you were wearing a local hardcore band from where you came from that I had read a Maxim Rock and Roll, I would go up to you and say, hey, who are you? Because I would know you're from out of town, and I would want to know more about where you're from and the bands you listen to, because, like, getting access to music was so hard. Right. And, you know, if I went to a show and I saw someone I didn't know with a shirt that I knew wasn't from town, I would talk to that person and go, where are you from? Yeah. You know, they'd be like, oh, how do you know I'm not from here? I'm like, oh, I would know if you're from here, because how the hell did you get that shirt? That band's <laughs> never played, you know? Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, and and so I think that affected our music style in the sense that we weren't all coming from the same place. And um, by the time Jason came into the band, he was like, again, there was always a bit of a metal background. Jason, you know, grew up in Saskatchewan and was in, like, like hair metal cover bands. He could play anything on guitar, oh, wow. but he moved to Vancouver and then chose to play bass in our band, and we were going to go on tour. And, I mean, he's, you know, he, he was, I, I have no training, man. Like, I just, you know, just learned how to blang my guitar and make this. I can't play anyone else's songs. I can just play our songs. Like, that. I just, that's what I did. Right. And, and, and he and Rob just worked so well together and playing uh, off of together with, you know, a talented, you know, when we first went on tour, we didn't know what we were doing. And I just got to say that anybody that like, if you want to get good, you know, yeah. it's not playing at your hometown with your friends. When you go on the road and play to nobody and you don't like, you don't know these people, like yeah. they are there, but you don't know them and you have to impress them. Yeah. You learn really hard how to get good because, it's it, it's like think or swim. Yeah. You know, we're playing to strangers That's... around the world. They need to be impressed. Yeah. And when we came from our first tour, that's when we became a band. Right. No, I I I, I recognize that feeling because I act, the first band I roadied for was uh, the band's actually like their first tour. It, I I, really, uh, I was Hot Water Music's first roadie, uh -oh. and um, 
so funny. I always re- we always heard of them and that they were fans of us they and that we should go together. And yet we never crossed paths and nothing ever came together. But that I'd, I'd always heard of this band being a band that we should play with. I think once we almost played a show together, like almost, and somehow you know something didn't work out. I'm and t- I was yeah, funny how that was. That whole first tour, like I was telling you, we listened to uh, products and accessories so many times. Uh, and like, like if we met some people and they'd never heard of you, we'd play it. The whole fucking record. Like, they had no choice. Like, you're going to listen to this shit because you're going to get your fucking mind blown away. You know, so... It, well, it, we owe a lot to you that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. No, it's no, thank you. Like, it's crazy to think about, like, the. It's funny that you heard that because, like, we're, you know, Hot Water Music, you know, just a couple dudes that grew up in Sarasota and Bradenton, shitty music scene down there. They all play music. They know Gainesville had a good music scene. They decided to move here. I was done hanging out there. I was like, I'll be your roadie. <laughs> and yeah. and then, you know, they move up here. And then five months later, I move up here. And then, like, a few months later, we go on our first tour. You know? In, in a gray ast- in a gray Astro van with five people and all of our equipment. <laughs> yeah. So. And how much you learn from that, right? Like, that is, you can't, that's like a taking a course. For a couple years in some college about music and touring, you learn yeah. on the you just learn hitting the ground yeah. what you have to fucking do to survive. And, and I'm guessing you guys use book your own fucking life as well. Oh yeah, that, there's no way. I mean, like again, I was this little scene. <laughs> I just went, oh yeah, we can book a tour. There's this thing called book your own fucking life, man. It's gonna go. And uh, so I met. So I had to also give an incredible, incredible amount of credit to. Um, uh, the scene in Vancouver, uh, there was um, some bands from Kamloops um, and this band called Desperate Minds that were then uh, this band called uh, Shakara and then and Red Sugar. And, and, and they probably, I don't even know if you would ever have heard of those bands, but they, it was a small town in the middle of British Columbia and those kids, uh, their parents owned a printing shop and uh-huh. they printed the stickers for every fucking West Coast Canadian band. Smart. And and when I first started putting out records, um, they uh, printed it. They printed the records for me because my friends were like, "Oh, you have to talk to these guys in Kamloops." And they they would do anything to help. And, and, and so they were another nobody band. Yeah. And they had toured California and across the country. And I went, "How did you do it?" And they went. We just did it. We yeah. got a van. I'm not joking. Like, we shared. He, I was like, we don't have a van. He'd be like, why don't you buy a van with us? I'm buying a new van. He's pitching half the money. And you can have it and you tour. And when you're not oh, touring, yeah. we'll use it. Yep. And, like, like without, like, he, Sean Shakara was such a supporter of, of bridging people together to make music and do things. And he had done stuff. And, again, bands would tour to Kamloops. You've never heard of Kamloops. Bands would tour to Kamloops because everyone knew about Kamloops in BC during this time in the early 80s because he was printing stickers for everybody's band. And 
his bands would play every show because they were like, hey, you printed tickets for us really cheap. You should be on the show. And so there was this incredible movement in the 80s that died down by the late 80s. Right. And Mark Marker just kind of, we really, I had those connections and I hadn't toured. And those bands kind of got old and started going to college and university. And, and um, so we really got to ride the coattails of what was learned before us, what right. I learned before me. And I said to my guys in my band, listen, I can make this happen. If you want to, if you guys stick, I, I'm not joking. I said this. I was like, if you guys want to stick with me and make this band happen, I will get us on tour and I'll take us to New York and we'll record in New York. Yeah. If you guys want to do that, stick with me. I'll do, I'll make, this will happen. And you know what? Thinking, and all, <laughs> thinking back to that stuff, those aren't big dreams when it comes to being in a band. No, but a lot of people are like, that's impossible. How do you even do that? And I was like, it's not a problem. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I'm like, you know, Don Curry just advertised in Maxim Rock and Roll, yeah. recorded in studio, fucking yeah. phoned them up. And when we recorded it, he's like, yeah. And I'm like, great. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like, like, just do it, you know? Like, yeah. you just, you make the phone calls. And, 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 and I was also, what do you call it? Like, I had... No pride. Uh, I would phone anybody up. And at, <laughs> if I heard them playing and they were on tour, I'd phone up and say, hey, I know you're on tour. Yeah. Can we pick up any of your shows? Right. You know? Why did Jawbox know about us? Because yeah. they were playing a show in Texas. And we went up to their show. We didn't have a show that night. And said, I know we're not on the bill, but, like, can we be added to the show? Because we're here and we could totally play. And they were like, aw, nice Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and they, and they finished their set, let us play afterwards. And for some reason, the crowd hung out, and we just were like, all right, this is our one chance to get everyone's attention. We have a crowd of people. And, you know, we were so happy that we played well that night and impressed Jawbox and made some fans there. But, you know, we wouldn't have even had that exposure. We got a seven inch out of that out of that show. Wow. Um, uh, the guy, Selfless Records, was in Texas, and they had put a record on Selfless Jawbox. And he said, I want to put a seven inch out with you guys. It was oh, just shit. like, oh my God, Dropbox had not said yes to us playing that show. That door wouldn't have opened, yeah. you know? And we had just come to New York and we had just our first seven inch recording that kind of was got the ball rolling. And he was the first to hear it and said, I'll put it out. And we were like, shit, man, things are happening. But yeah. I mean, that's just because we had the gumption or the lack of pride to just go up and say, we're in town. Can we play? Right. Well, I mean, you, you know. figure in those situations, as an artist, you are someone who's, um, you're, you're in a situation where you're like, uh, it's, it's an opportunity that the universe opens up to you, and, and, and I find that a lot with a lot of the bands that I've followed over the years, like, there's these weird little happenstances and these weird little times where artists are there just to support other artists no matter what level or where they're looked at in like fame or fortune they still understand the artistic um relevance behind what you're doing and they understand the the work that it takes to get there yeah i i, I think bands that have worked really hard and played to nobody understand that and i think bands that uh, how can I say this? If you stay, if you stay as a big fish in a small pond, I don't know if you have that perspective. But right. if you're a big fish in a small pond, and then you decide to go into the big lake, um, you learn quickly 
you know, it, it's who helps you out and yeah. you want to pass the torch on and help. And punk rock DIY is really about that, but that really, really quickly started to change, you know, in, in the mid nineties when yes. it was just pop music and yeah. everyone was trying to make a sound. And, you know, if I didn't have so well, much, there's a lot of weird bands bad. coming out around then, like Texas is the reason and bands uh-huh. like that that kind of had a different feel to them than the like bands like you and the bands a little bit earlier than them. They, uh-huh. they seemed, I mean, just in my eyes, and plus I'm just, I guess I have to say it's because my band played a show with them. And yeah. <laughs> and they were the rudest people we ever played with in my entire life. And then uh, five years later, I was touring with a different band on tour, and they played with Texas is the Reason in Pittsburgh somewhere and they showed up with like none of their equipment and just asked to play you know with the band that was touring's equipment and like yeah. and then didn't even say thank you afterwards you know yeah it was like one of those weird things like there was bands at that time and I hate to call out a band like that but that's just my personal uh, experience with them I don't know anybody else's personal experience but I found yeah. it, I found it funny, like how you said how things kind of changed a little bit, and people kind of started moving more away from a. Um, it moved away from artistry, in a sense, and like a true spirit of of uh, finding a sound that moved people to. Okay, we have the mathematical equation now that works, so we can get these people in the club. Yeah, I, I, I mean, with a band like Spark Marker, I mean, let's be honest. You know, we our 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 highest hopes we could ever be would to be bridging some weird metal metal um, crowd. You know what right. I mean? Like we we were uh, we would never be top forty sounding. We just didn't have that. You know, again, today's different. What to be top forty? Maybe is a bit different, or alternative totally. music, whatever. It was really small. And there was a lot of interesting music coming out at that time that wasn't radio-friendly but was softer, you know? I mean, people used to joke about Green Day being so pop-punk, you right. know what I mean? Like, in, in the punk Maxim Rock and Roll days, you know yep. what I mean? Like, it was like, oh my God, they're so poppy. It's just yep. pop-punk. Like, it was kind of an insult about, yeah, it's popular, that's the whole point, pop-punk. Yeah. Like, it was, you know, and then, you know, like you were saying about sharing Spark Marker with people, that's hilarious. Uh, you know, we would be sharing the Sunny Day real estate demos that came out. We're like, this is fucking shit as well. Amazing. <laughs> and people would be like, what's this band? I'm like, you got to tape this. This band is so fucking awesome. They're friends of ours, blah, 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 blah. You hear, uh, you know, like. I could have seen did. you guys on tour together, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we came from the same scene because we played Seattle a lot. And, um, and it's more like uh, like Curtis Pitts, who signed them to sub up or discovered them, was one of my best friends in oh, Seattle. Sure. Like going back and forth. So that's why we even had a seventh on sub up because of Curtis. And he could pretty much do anything he wanted after Sunday Real Estate got signed. Oh, and, um, and, um, and, you know, so, you know, but that band, you know, got, you know, was, you know, then there was like people were trying to sound like them because they were gotten video on much music and, we would, we would go to Sunny Day real estate shows um, and 
you know, they were only a year old and a year and a half old. And there was record reps at, at the show more yeah. than people coming to see them in Seattle. And the, the climate in Seattle was really weird because it was like record reps were trying to find the next Nirvana. Right. And that pressure was, it was, it was still the same people going to shows, yet there was these people at the show you knew weren't a part of the scene that were from somewhere else. And, you know, you got quick word. Yeah, the record reps from this record label here and this record label here. And they're all trying. And I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Like, this that's, is just that's fear. When it, that's when it got greasy. <laughs> yeah. And, and some of those people are my friends. Yeah. You know, like, uh, <laughs> like, like <laughs> Curtis. And, yeah. and, you know, we would get to know other record reps really quickly because we knew the right people. And, but, you know, I... I for, for my sake, you know, I, I just was a real honest person, and and um, you know, there's some good people that that uh, helped us out. Dave Walter, who was at the Hollywood Records, uh, you know, he signed like into another and seaweed. Yeah. I mean, he fucking helped out so fucking much in New York. I, you know, appreciate and I, I thank him, thank him, thank him so much for letting us like sleep on his floor and 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 for months or not months for weeks. Yeah. Um, but you know. Um, and he was, you know, working for a big record label. And, you know, he, he, you know, I remember having conversations with him. He's like, well, do you think he could write a hit song? And I was like, you know, if that ever happened, it'd be by fluke, not by choice. Like, right. that's just not what I do, you know? And, and I knew the language. Not that I'm saying he wanted to try to sign us. I just knew what the music industry was wanting to hear from bands. Right. And I like, I, I, I can't speak that way. Like, you weren't that's writing just, that shit. I, I just that's not something I could consciously do, right. and 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 I didn't I didn't even believe other bands were doing that. I actually because I ended up working in the music industry, right. and I just not even believe that bands were actually wanting to write hit songs. And I would talk to people in higher management, and I'm like, does that? I don't want to name bands, but you know, I'd be like, like Jimmy Eat World, like yeah, we talked. To, I'm like Jimmy Eat World, they, they didn't want to get what, and it was like, and they're like, oh yeah, they talked to, and I was like fans want to be on a big record label i was scared of the big record labels i was like i didn't want to sell out the scene mm -hmm. i was still very idealistic hardcore kid who was like that's yeah. my scene it, it i survived life from it don't yeah. destroy it well jimmy is one of the bands for the past five years that is has said no and we actually i know those guys <laughs> i know them like it's so funny. Every one of their managers that they've told me to email have don't have emails anymore. I guess because I bothered them too much. Uh -huh. <laughs> we actually Hot Water Music played with them at their warehouse in Arizona in '98, like right before, like before Bleed America came out. You know, like, and, and it was like we just showed up. They played the show at the, their warehouse. We hung out. You know, they came to Gainesville a few times, played Common Grounds or the High Dive, and we knew each other, and I hit them up to do the podcast, and they're just like, <laughs> they don't remember. They don't remember me. But I get it, you know, like, when you, when you go on to write albums for this many years, and you're putting out videos, and you're meeting so many people and doing bigger tours... The older tours probably kind of seem to blend in to other stuff, so which I totally understand. But I'm not giving up on them, and I'm still going to get them on the show. So, 
I, I remember our, our, our last tour, which would have been 97. I think it was that, I think it was that tour, maybe before, maybe it was 96, um, where we played a show in Isla Vista and this girl uh, came up to the show or came to the show. We were playing with Man Will Surrender. I really like them. And um, they, um, I remember this girl, I can't remember her name, and she started chatting with me. And, you know, I look back now and I realized what it was. It was like, you know, the record labels had, you know, their kids who they would give free, free records, promo records to give the kids in the scene because they were trying to get the next, you know, band, yeah. you know, everyone to know about it. And so touring bands like us were great because we would be able to take the music and if we liked it, we'd share it with the next city and with our fans. Right. Like I was telling you about Sunny Day Real Estate. That was organic. No one fucking paid me to do that. I was right. excited. We went to John Hilst's in fucking New Jersey and we were there for a week recording in New York and we just fucking taped it for everybody. <laughs> and right. I remember getting I remember getting a copy of this girl going, here, here's a copy of the Jimmy Eat World. I think you will really like them. And I'm like, who's Jimmy Eat World? And why are you giving me a CD for free? Yeah. Like, this is so odd. I don't even know you. And 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 she just kind of came up after we played and gave it to me. And it wasn't like she was a fan of our band. or she, It was like more she wanted me to get this CD. Yeah. And looking back, I was like, oh, that's a part of the machine now that yep. was playing in that natural network that was yep. that had already existed, and they were just trying to like you know feed into it, and it, was, it worked. You it know? was it was social media before social media. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, that's how shit happened, right? I right. mean, you get the word out. I mean, that I remember. Anyway, I can say great fans, and it was a, it was a weird time. I mean, we 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 toured with a lot of hardcore. We didn't fit anywhere. And so we toured with a lot of weird sounding bands and, you know, where we would like them. I don't like to say weird sounding bands. I mean, we were a weird match. And, you know, we Undertow, let's just say, we love Undertow. I mean, fucking, they're great guys. Yeah. And, you know, they love us. But, you know, the straight edge scene likes everything sounding the same. You know, yeah. like we, we played a bunch of shows with Stripe on our last tour and they were like, you know, big fans of ours, not all of them, but like, you know, they were fans of ours. Like, well, the bass player was a like, huge fan of ours. And he was like, and they were headlining over us. And they were like, oh, they were like feeling awkward about it. Right. Yet, it didn't matter <laughs> because at the end of the day, the crowd only wanted the other bands that sounded like Stripe. Like we didn't sound like right. the band we, we played shows with. And I'm not saying we were better. We were just, we didn't fit anywhere. You had and your, while I, you had it, your own sound. I, I appreciate the unique character of who we are as a band yeah. and that some people like it. But that also means that you're not popular and it just makes it harder to Well, the to, funny to, thing to... is, is like you're popular, you're popular because people are still talking about you 20 plus years later. So, they're... Are they? I don't yes. know. Maybe some people are. You I mean, are, and I'm happy for I, that. I, be I believe music fans, like people... Not only from my generation, but the generations bef after us who are into music and and know people like us and are no older people. Like, I mean, I don't I don't let it pass by when I'm working in a place and there's some new young kid. Guess what they're gonna listen to? I'm gonna give them my full fucking '90s regime. You know, 
you know, and they're, they're going to be like, that sounds like so-and-so. And I was like, well, now you know the band that you listen to, who they stole their sound from, you know? Yeah. like, Because to me, the 90s bands like you and a lot of the other bands that came out, that was it for music. Like, that was the last bastion of a different style of music done a different way. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. I just mean like, I to me it was the last unoriginal. It was the last original era of music where people didn't even themselves know quite what they were playing, but they liked what they were playing, and somehow that music still transferred and was able to talk to people that listened to all different types of music. I think it was interesting because. You could now, let's say after Nirvana broke, you know, you could go into a studio and say, I want to sound like that. And everyone in that studio would know what you're talking about. But let's just say pre-Nirvana, if you walked into a studio and said, we would shop at studios in Vancouver, like when I say shop, try, try to find people to record with, and we'd say, we want to sound kind of like this, they had have no reference <laughs> to, you know. And if I played the music for them, they would Still, like you think of the first demo we recorded in studio, they just feel like, well, I don't know how to do that because I've never heard that before, but I'll, I'll do what I do good. And, yeah. you know, realize they, they didn't even have a concept of where this music was coming from right. or where trying, what it was trying to achieve. I mean, I mean, I'm just thinking to myself, I mean, I remember the fucking day I heard Rain and Blood. Because, like, you know, so I love Slayer. And, 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 it's amazing. You know, it, it, it blew your mind. Yes. Like, how it just all of a sudden went to a place that before they were trying to go to, yeah. but you know, no one knew how to record it, or it just kind of came up with a blur of noise lost in yeah. kind of an echo chamber of, of an empty room echoing. And, and, and then all of a sudden it was like in your face, right? Yeah. And it was like a new level had been hit. Like yeah. everyone referenced Slayer and said, fuck, that is like Slayer's. And I mean, my critique of Slayer's, I don't think they've done anything that sounds anything better than that record because it's just after that they've hit the peak. Holy like, shit. Holy that's shit. That's Holy shit. You're the first person I've heard say that that I agree with 100%. <laughs> yeah. I just, <laughs> It's the pinnacle, like the, the apex. That was it, there's you know. No other album, that, there's no other album like it. Well, and the records after that sound just like yeah. Rain and Blood. So, yeah. like, there's just no surprise anymore, right? Yeah. They just hit the roof. Yeah. And so, you know, the most exciting thing is when a band sucks and is <laughs> learning and they're trying to figure out what they're doing and, and then they hit this pocket. And, you know, maybe that's what we accidentally were able to do with products and accessories. I think there's a magic of accidental happening with records. Um, and nowadays, I mean, you can just dial in digitally that guitar set. Yeah. Easily. That guitar sound. Did you, and you have it. Yeah. So after you guys did that album, was the next the next one was what, 500 Watt Burner? Yeah. yeah 500 Burner 7, yep. Okay. How, well, how long after... Uh, the first one, did you guys come out with this one? God, I mean, we were always trying to get a record label to sign us, and the hard part was 
Yeah, that was a hard job, man. No one, no one wanted, to, no one knew what to do with us. Right. So um, that's the weirdest that, thing to me because they seem to be able to push a lot of like different sounding bands at the time. In Canada, we could assign to Canadian labels, okay. but then I don't think you would have ever heard of us, and uh, that was a big tension I had. Is like I didn't want to. You don't even know that there's Canadian bands that get stuck in Canada, right. and they do. And I didn't want to be that. And uh, maybe we could have. Maybe would have opened other doors. So I can't say that it would have been the wrong thing to do. But at the time, the decision I, for me was like, no way. I do not want to be famous in Canada and, and unknown in the states. Like we hardly played Canada. We always played the states. Right. Uh, Why were you and, to play Canada so much, or 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 become big there when it's such a big? place canada is like from the west coast of canada like vancouver is the biggest city right and then the next city is calgary and it's like 11 hours away oh, shit. in that okay. 11 hours we could have just driven and played seattle portland and been halfway over two-thirds of the way to san francisco oh, wow. so for us, and it was cheaper gas it was and easy. there was more people to play yeah there was yeah. just that more people and you're going to make a bigger impression in Seattle and Portland and San Francisco than smaller towns in Canada that no one's heard of. Right. No, I'm not insulting that's just economics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, totally. you know, and the labels in the States were like, but you're Canadian and you sound like you're from New York or something, <laughs> but you know, how are we going to market that? Cause you don't like, exactly you're not from what you New just York. said, asshole. We're Canadian, but we sound like we're from New York. Start with that. Yeah. <laughs> and it was kind of funny. <laughs> I mean, and I love the guys at Revelation and Jordan's really sweet guy, but yeah. we had been talking to him forever. Walter from Quicksand was trying to get us on Revelation right from the beginning. Oh, and shit. it was like, at that time, they were only putting out New York bands. Yeah. And they were just like, do with you. Like, I don't know. And I was like, well, you know, how long are we going to wait for this? Because otherwise, I'll, yeah, why don't you put it out yourself? See how it goes. Like, Jordan's really, like, chill. Yeah. And it's just like... We really wanted someone just to jump on us and love us. Yeah. And that didn't really happen until um, the irony of timing was uh, we had a falling out with Ryan in the band. Mm. And that's when Mike Gitter from Atlantic wanted to sign us. Of course, you know, Jawbox would eventually, um, well, they signed with them and stuff. And what year was they, that about? Jeez, uh, that, that would have been around 90. I'm going to guess around 95. Wow. 94, oh, 95. Yeah, yeah, it was, I mean, it, I mean, yeah, it was a really, that was the weirdest period of our, our career because we kind of imploded with Ryan. Ryan, we were getting record offers for, in Canada and people wanted to sign us and it was talking about like five, people were like, no one wants to get ripped off like that other band did. So everyone wanted these five-year, five-record contract deals. And we were like, five years, five records? With a, yeah. Like, last thing I want to do is to be stuck in a contract with a band label that didn't like us because they dropped us. Especially, so especially a, if they didn't like the first record, you'd be fucked because you have to give them four more. <laughs> it was such a weird time. And so even the small independent labels were asking for that. Everyone wanted to, like, cash in so that if the label... in Revelation got ripped off a lot, right? Like, a lot of bands put a record on a Revelation then jumped up to the majors yep. and never had contracts. And so 
Revelation there was, was one, I'm just telling you, but there's lots of, uh, all the low labels were doing that. And um, those conversations were happening like crazy in Canada for us. And Ryan, I, for me, my perspective is it just really brought up the pressure in our band of what could we do for the next five years. And I remember Ryan saying, like, next five records? I can't even imagine the next one. Wow. And I was just like, you can't imagine the next one? Yeah. And that kind of, I'm not saying that was the conversation. I'm saying that's what I read. One of the conversations I remember where all of a sudden it was like, the, uh, you know, one of the, your brain starts going, maybe we're not in this together. <laughs> on the right. same page. Because so, uh, the rest of us were really, 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 really tight on, on what we wanted to do. Yeah. And, uh, and so that dynamic shifted. And just as we decided <clears throat> to do our last tour with him, that's when um, Brian Schroeder, Pathet, yeah. uh, came to our show in Francisco, and then he told Mike Gitter about us, and then Mike Gitter came out, and then he flew out, and he wanted to see us, and by that time, Ryan was in the band, and then he's like, I would sign you right now if you stayed with that lineup, and I'm like, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> like, you line up now, and like, Ryan is on a different level, and, and we get along, and it's as a different band almost now. So, yeah. and, and then Stiv came out. Remember Stiv? Yep. They were just putting that together. And then Mike get, get it. They were trying to find another guitar, second guitar player for that. And they asked a lot of other people way before me. And then they were asking me. And then, <laughs> it, then it became this all about like trying to other bands, trying to get me to be in other bands that were coming together. Cause you know, they were putting bands together here and there and, yep. and, and I was like, no, I, I like my friends. <laughs> I just like playing music with these guys, you know? Yeah. Like, I I, 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 I don't want to just go to New York and start up. I, I mean, no offense to Siv, but you know that I maybe I come from that same scene, but like that's not the kind of music I like. Um, like, you know, if someone had asked me to play in quicksand, you know, fuck, I would I would have said yes. Like, I love quicksand. Seconds. But, um, <laughs> What's that? Yeah, you know, like, not a problem. <laughs> but you know that that you know you know that at the same time it was that whole question of like, oh, that could open some doors for me. I could have gone to New York. Like, I mean, it was seriously offered to me, and I was like, I I was just like, I I don't want to move halfway across the country. I don't have that many friends out there uh, yeah. to start off playing in someone's band where they have a dress code. They dress a certain way, and for me. Also, at the time, uh, you know, it's like hard to even, to, it, it, I can so easily skip over this. You know, I came out as being gay with my band and to like, that was still fresh for me. And so to move to New York and like already be assumed to be straight and having to, I was just like, right. no, 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 this is all way too much for me. Like I, 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 I have a lot, you know, of, that I'm discovering about myself and who I am. And my band members are all 100% behind me. And, and quite honestly, I know a lot of people in the scene, like you were talking about musicians, I was very vocal about, uh, not vocal, I was open about, vocal about politics, but open about being gay. Right. And it, it, it seems to me, um, obviously in my little hometown, uh, Vancouver, you know, we grew up as, you know, as from a small band to being a bit of a popular band in that small scene that, you know, I could do whatever I wanted, really. Like, right. I was just me, and, and, you know, like, I was, I, I felt confident. But, you know, to move to another city and not have that support and that network that I had built, yeah. um, to be that, you know, 
uh, I've done a lot of politics of community building and work around uh, what I call the queer music scene. I've even been in queer bands and right. stuff after Sparkster because that's really important to me. And um, and so I don't regret that, but I know that was also scary to think about just being a part of a machine that wants to portray you as, um, you know, for you know the political terms of just being another straight white boy band or something right. like that. You know what I mean? That's, that's, like, that's I, good, one, that's, that's not me. Thing to go into, Kim. I have a, you know, like um, the era that you decided to, you know, come out to your bandmates and and everyone else. I'm guessing was in the '90s. So we were, we're talking about like '96, '97. Yeah, I, probably, I came up probably in 94, 95, like when Ryan left okay. the band shortly after that. So super, so super early in the 90s, which, yeah. you know, back then, everyone knows that, you know, I mean, I don't know how people outside the punk rock scene are, myself, but like in my punk rock scene in Sarasota, Florida, it was... Everybody was, you know, everybody that was put down upon, uh, bullied, uh, that was made to feel bad for who they wanted to be, those were the punk rock kids. Yeah. You know, those were the kids that stood together and would all stand together and get their asses beat together to stand up for any of their friends. And... I myself, as a um, as a human being who, who who empathizes with what people go through and their tough decisions that they have to make when they have to realize that you're opening yourself up in such a way that you're gonna get some sort of feedback that might not be the best. Did you ever have an issue with that? Were, were you was there ever an issue as a musician and as a gay musician when you were coming out? Was was, was there an issue about it? Um, it was more like um, when you look at the concept, I don't know if you ever heard of that concept of, you know, um, a, a sort of scale of, right. you know, on one there's hatred and then there's another there's tolerance right. and then you have acceptance and then you have supportive and then you have nurturing right i mean at that same time you know um you know i became very i mean i i ended up getting hiv when i and when i was still in spark marker i was like 24 years old and i'm glad you're still here with us what's that i said i'm glad you're still here with us I mean, it was a really weird time because people were still dying at that time. Yes. And I really became, you know, quite, you know, uh, aware of the politics. And, uh, uh, I mean, just it, it was illegal for me to even travel into the States living with HIV because the United States still, up until 2008, had a law against tourists with yeah. HIV coming into the country. I remember was, the first time you know, I heard that they um... – the first time that Frankie goes to Hollywood, when he found out he had HIV, they wouldn't allow Frankie goes to Hollywood to come to America. Yeah, it, it, it was fucked up. Yeah. And and so I had to I had to go from being really out of, wanting to be out of the closet to also having to be very careful about 
how much I shared. Because to me, those two things are really intrinsically tied together. True. And, um, but going back to the supportive nurturing thing, in my work with HIV and AIDS, I really got to see what it was like to be in environments that were very nurturing Good. for people of sexual minorities. And the punk rock scene, I would then go play our shows, and they weren't nurturing. They weren't supportive. Right. They, 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 they weren't. Maybe they were might be trying to get to the point of accepting. They were more like tolerating. Right. And I was like, this isn't good for me. Like, and I would have friends saying, like, especially once Spark Parker broke, they're like, why did you leave the scene? And I'm like, it's not that fucking great of a scene, guys. Like, it doesn't let everyone be exactly who they are. I, I, it's, it, it's okay if I keep my mouth shut. But if I open my mouth, no one would touch me. But if right. I brought a boyfriend to a show and my boyfriend was off on his own doing something, he would hear homophobic remarks being made to him. Oh, and wow. I was like, that fucked up. You know what yeah. I mean? No one would touch me. I was too cool. I was too high up there. But behind my back, what people were saying to people around me, or maybe behind my back about me, I, you know, I just went, well, why, why, you know, again. I really love this punk rock scene for what I grew up with and whatnot, right. but I don't have it on a pedestal. I, no. I definitely limit. I believe it originally was for freaks and geeks and weirdos. Yes, I went was. to a lot of punk rock shows at gay bars, but yep. by the time it blew up and became huge, it became a boys club. And yeah. I, I liked Riot Girl. I liked the politics that came out of trying to create safer spaces, but Riot Girl did not like the music that Spark Marker played. And, um, <laughs> you know, I'm serious. Like, we would play shows with, uh, those were my friends. Right. And we just mixed, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I was playing tough guy fucking hardcore. That's and <laughs> my policy, you know, people who actually liked it. And the, and the it's okay, you could still be Cooper, a tough guy. You could still be tough. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it was a really weird, like, where does this fit? Either you're a... Yeah. Uh, Sweater nerds, yeah. you know, Olympic Washington queer kids, but to be a hardcore kid in tattoos and liking heavy music, there were very few examples of yeah. people that were like that. Mike yeah. Bullshit was one person who I really liked in Max Rock and Roll that was queer, but you know, he, interestingly, even more so than what I talked about, Lee, he, he would not talk about hardcore, but he, he laughed and and, and I remember trying to interview him, and he was like, I do not talk about my punk rock days anymore. I oh, do not. Wow. That's not anymore. And I was like, what? Must like, have, I, I was must so, have fucked with him pretty hard. I don't know what happened. I never found out. That's I really wild. wanted to because I really enjoyed reading his, 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 his uh, what do you call it, columns of Maximum Rock and Roll. Yeah. Um, and very few gay folks that I, I met who, um, I met some, by the way, you know, um, yeah, or people who were or whatnot and Damien from fucking Undertow was the funnest bisexual guy who would I'm not joking <laughs> the funniest I used to be in this hardcore band called Strain as well for a while okay and uh, start them out and then they went off on their own and um, they we played we did a tour though to California with Undertow and uh, I remember we <laughs> played a show in San Diego in this house which was awesome and uh I was talking to the guys in Amenity, and because I've known them for I'd known them for a long time, and uh, Damien just came up and just tried to like give me a big kiss, and then walk away while I was standing there, and I loved him for doing it, right? Because it was just like 
so hilariously like, fuck whatever anyone else thinks. Yeah. I'm going to do what I want. That's and right. I loved him for uh, At the same time, you know, there really wasn't a, 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 a conversation piece for people to talk to. And I remember afterwards people saying, hey, Kim, I heard a rumor from the guys in California. I'm not saying it was the guys in the Menity, just maybe the people that were in that show, yeah. saying that you and your toe were on tour and you were going to fly the flag of homosexuality, and that's what your agenda was. And I was just like, oh, my God, I, I kissed a girl. No one would say I'm flying the flag of flag of heterosexuality. Right. But, you know, it, it was it – was, I, I was very aware that people were, like, watching what would happen to me because I was being so out. Yeah. And – uh, and and you know we heard I heard stuff about J Tree, uh, you know records you know closing down its message board because of all the homophobic remarks being made about the possibility of one of the guys in Promise Ring being gay, and you know shit like that you know existed That's and none of the it's not a possibility. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, no. I know that now, but at the time it's it was so just funny rumor. that people say that because I, I'm getting what you're saying about that time period. Is that yeah. we all had gay friends that we should have been all supportive of a hundred percent, but yet some of us let our friends down. Is what we did. We should have been punk rock to the core, which means no bullshit. We got your back 100%. We're ride or die. And that's what punk rock to me means is ride or die. Like no matter who you are, if you're part of a crew and we love you and we're family, I got your back no matter what and no one's ever going to mess with you. You know, and that's how I've always felt about it. And I think realistically, yeah. But I mean, the truth of the matter is that already existed in some some scenes back in the late seventies, yeah. And no, it totally. quickly pushed out because the queer folks didn't feel comfortable. Yeah, you know what I mean. They were just like, ah, "There's macho guys that might beat me up," yeah. you know. And 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 it takes us a while to unravel our own internalized homophobia, including myself as a gay guy. Right. I didn't even know that I was gay at first. You know, I had to go through. I was a homophobe. I was a racist. I was a sexist growing up. Right. I had to learn that. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, learn behavior. That's what I. We have to unlearn a lot, you know, yeah. and it takes the process of unlearning. Yeah. So I'm not mad at anybody. I just, just knew that where I needed to be was in a place that was much more supportive of who I was. Right. Uh, and not supportive. I meant nurturing. And believe me. I ended up working in the music industry, uh, this record label called Network Records, and I did all the graphic design for like Avril Lavigne and Sum 41, and oh, I did all this fuck. That's the that's my job that I did afterwards, <laughs> and um, you know I expected that music industry to be super uh, gay friendly too, and I was like, oh no, it's still very straight, no yeah. matter where you were. Like it was like again having worked in the HIV AIDS community that was very pro gay or yeah. pro any you are um you know the music industry in itself was still like hey what's gonna sell more records right you know what i mean like you know if you can think it's gonna sell records then that's good but otherwise keep your mouth shut oh, wow. and 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 that's just you know ridiculous that's like saying if you're but, anti-racist and you think it's gonna sell more records do it but if you don't think it's not going to don't <laughs> yeah totally that's stupid as shit and, 
<laughs> and and when, I, when I say that, by the way, it's not implicit. People don't specifically say that, right? But it, it's implicit. You can it's implied in how work is being done and where things are being happening. You know, what I mean, I've spoken to many gays, guys who are gay in the music industry, you know, before yeah. punk rock. I'm talking about because I did a queer punk band. And, you know, some people would come up to me and say, oh, my God, I can't believe you're doing this. And this is one of the things I've always wanted to see. I'm a musician, and I've had to always be in the closet. There's no way I was allowed to sing about being who I am, and I'm just so happy to see your band. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's all I, all I want to do is just be able to do it, not because it should be the next popular thing, but because it shouldn't be weird. Right. And so with the band The Skin Jobs, we had lots of fun. But, you know, that was really pushing a lot of people's envelope when they just, in the gay community, they loved it, of course. But when we played straight shows, shows, people really, they they just didn't know what to say. They just were like, I can can hear Green Day talk about girls or any pop punk band talking about girls, but do you hear a guy singing about, guy or a girl singing about girls? Because we had multiple singers and go-go dancers. It was a fun show. People just, it was exciting. They wanted to like it, but they were having to process their own internalized homophobia at the time of watching it. Even, and though, they that's pro- what, even though that week they probably listened to a Queen record. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you know it, it, it's fun to hear, uh, see a Queen documentary now, and I heard people the even hypo- criticizing the hypocrisy. that. <laughs> well, people see that movie now and i've heard people criticizing saying it wasn't gay positive enough and that it was that it really shown things in a negative light i'm like that's what it was like in the 70s yeah that's like he it's like there's no way in the 70s or 80s that people like supported you for being gay nope. you know I, I i i was so my first concert ever was judas priest nice. and so rob halford came out of the closet you know that was like and he actually i mean not like there was rumors but when he actually said those words like that he was gay i was like fuck right on dude like you know like well then like we, that, that we knew what hell bent for leather meant <laughs> well looking back it's so beyond obvious you know yeah. and then and then you had musicians like bob mold who yeah. just refused to come out and talk about it even though there was two gay guys in the band and they felt so and and, and i'm not dissing him that he no. chose the wrong thing. He did what he felt he needed to do, but like, I also feel like there was missed opportunities because everyone's wanting to be successful right. and not want to hurt their careers. And um, when I look at the inspiring queer people in the world in my life, they're not men; they're women. Yeah, women have always come out first and said, "Fuck it, I'm being myself," and they're my heroes. Yeah, um, I. Uh, there's a lot of gay guys still in the music scene and the hardcore scene that that uh, I, I would put out in my zine Fago because I'd hear rumors about people being gay, but they don't want to talk. They don't, they don't want to be the gay spokesperson. And I'm like, no lesbian ever says they want to be the gay spokesperson. They're just why, being themselves. Why, why can't gay guy has to think, why you, know? you put spokesperson on it? No one, no one's asking. Like this is the thing. This is like me doing a podcast. I'm not asking you to be the spokesperson for music. I'm asking you, as Kim, to tell me, as, a, as someone who played in a band called Spark Marker and the other things that you did, the, you're the spokesperson for your life. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, that's who you got. you're the spokesperson for, is your life. And yeah. that's what you're 
sharing. So that that part of you, this is the one thing I always have to tell people and I have to remind them over and over again, the, the pain, the suffering, the things you have to give up, the things that you have to just turn your back on because you're an artist and the things you have to sacrifice, people don't understand what artists have to do to do that. And, and, and you, you are telling me a story right now where there sounds like, you know, it was good. It was great. It was fun. But of course, like every other artist you had to sacrifice. I think no matter who you are in this world, um, what I feel like the base of what you're talking about is authenticity and integrity and, and whether or not, I mean, in the end you have to go to bed with yourself yeah. and whether or not you feel, whether you're rich or poor, whether or not you feel um, happy with yourself and who you are as a person. And we all make mis We all do things that we regret afterwards and learn from. No one's perfect. I'm not saying that, but right. you know, I think when you step into that uncomfortable zone and make yourself vulnerable, that's where courage comes from. It's not because you're doing it because you know the outcome, it's because you don't know the outcome, and you get out and you speak your truth. And yeah, it might suck for a while, but you're like, you know what? It was way worse holding it in. Right. But sadly, especially for gay men, they grow we grow up in a world that um, they're already invisible. Yeah. You know, we don't get, we don't, they, they're, they're, we, gay men have to unlearn internalized homophobia. So yeah. much, and gay women, everyone, because it's, it, it's, it's up to you to do it yourself. And then you're risking people, right? It, it's the first thing you're lying to yourself. The whole, you don't even know what you're lying about. All you know is that people don't like you the way you are. Right. And that's horrible. That is absolutely horrible to have people judge you by your gender or to judge you by your sexuality and not even ask you whether or not you like that gender or like that sexuality that they're putting on you. Right. And, and, and and that onus isn't on that person. It's on society to start, you know, um, giving people and, – and this is me too because I still assume people's sexuality. And it's like, why am I assuming it, you know? Because <laughs> we're humans, I, I think. I think we're, we're innately uh... – stuck with this that weird thing of assumption like every human being no matter how much they want to assume something about somebody they do it it's like this weird monkey brain thing to me sometimes when people do that and i'm like why did you assume that about like if you have a conversation someone would say oh i assumed you were an asshole and i'm like well we've never had a conversation how could you assume i, I always what's happened people are like oh you're actually a nice guy i yeah. thought you were gonna ask you're yeah. like where why, did why that couldn't we talk first before you assume that about me but uh no um kim i'm not gonna hold you up anymore um i appreciate your time i i just want you to um if you have a moment just to say whatever you want to to the listeners here at the podcast um give them any information that you want to give um anything that you're doing now whatever you're working on um and anything else that's going on with you if there's any you know anything you want to say to the people it's the the, the mic is yours <laughs> well 
I talk a lot, so you really opened up a landscape for me to just go off on. Um, uh, you know what? I, I really appreciate this conversation. I feel like it's been very organic. I really appreciate it. Thank um, you. One of the things that you know, really, uh, we haven't brought up. It hasn't come up yet. Uh, you know, for me, and uh, as is learning one of the biggest things I learned in the punk rock scene is about the importance of documenting your life yeah. and documenting your scene um, and, and knowing that if if you don't document it you're letting history being documented by somebody else who might just want to forget you completely that you existed right. and I've always felt especially the old free Nirvana hardcore punk rock music, what you know is just very uh, underdocumented or unknown about, and um, you know, uh, a year and a half ago, I got diagnosed with uh, a, a blood cancer that uh, fucked up my kidneys already. Okay. Uh, and you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be here much longer. It's that bad, and 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 I'm 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 good now at this moment. I have my energy levels and whatnot, but uh, I'm really happy that I um, am trying to share some of my stories. I'm. Archive. I have boxes of stuff from when I was a kid of the stories that we're talking. And we happen to have a library, uh, a a university here that has a special collections library. And I'm able to donate um, my stuff to their punk rock collection and their uh, gay lesbian collection collectively as myself. And in being accepted to do that, you know, I never thought of myself as being that special. Uh, I mean, I thought of special as in like we're all special. But um, individuals, but um, to realize sometimes that our stories that we're living, uh, if I don't uh, document or share some of that stuff, it will be lost. And um, I'm so happy. I really think it's, I'm really happy that some people instilled in me that whole like, keep copies of those flyers and those posters and those records and other people's deans and other people's posters. And stuff that, you know, has resonance to your community. I remember talking to Ian McKay, uh, doing an interview with him at some point, and he could obviously tell I was a fan. I'm trying to get an and, interview with him right now. I've been working on it for four years. Oh, he <laughs> loves talking, man. He just <laughs> loves talking. He's a great guy. A really great wait. guy. I can't wait to get it. I'm going to get it someday, but I, w- I can't wait. <laughs> you will. You will. I'm sure you will. I, 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 I talked to him recently about my archive and stuff like that, and it was, it was funny because not about him. I'm going to go back to um, is, But when I did the interview with him years ago when I was younger, I remember him seeing me as a, a fanboy of, of his band and, you know, wanting to be in D.C. And I remember him saying, you know, it's really great, you know, that you know about my band and, like, what's going on in, in Washington, D.C. And, and what's kind of going on. But you know what's more important? It, it's about what you're doing here in Vancouver with your friends and your team because I don't know anything about that. And what you're doing with it and how you document it, it's creating, you know, the story and interest for me to learn about your team because you're the expert on your team. And, you know, don't think that what we're doing is so special here. We just documented it well. And we're just, you know, our friends hanging out, doing what we're doing, just like you're doing. So just keep doing it and document it, you know? And... Uh, it further instilled that message about the importance of it. And, uh, you know, I thanked him. Uh, that's why I talked to him recently for that. And, you know, uh, because I have a collection to, to, to send off to the Simon Fraser University Special Collections here yeah. in Vancouver, and um, that uh, a lot of folks in the punk rock scene of Vancouver, because it's old, actually, it's a very historical one, have died 
and and their stories are gone with them because they didn't document it yeah. or their lives they didn't get there. Um, Mr. Chai Pig Kenshin from SNFU just died a few months ago. Oh, shit. And really? Yeah, and he was homeless and he was poor and didn't have any of his collections of belongings. Wow. He was someone who, as a, as a, a man in, 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 in the in music scene that I grew up with, but I also knew him that as being someone who was gay and living with HIV as well. Yeah. And I know so much that story of his is gone because he's gone. And that how important it is to have these stories and to document them. And so thank you for reaching out to me because you created uh, another document for me to pass on to uh, the Simon Fraser University to share some more parts of my story and my life. Well, and it comes from... So, extremely honored for that um like i said i'm just i'm a guy who played music for 15 years i write electronic music now i dork out you know because i'm too old to play in a band and <laughs> uh no you're not <laughs> no i'm not i'm not i'm not i keep telling myself that but i'm very thankful and i have to tell you this I'm very thankful that I had the opportunity to even hear one of your songs in my life. It is something people don't understand. Music means so much to me. When I talk about it, it makes me want to cry. Because this is why I do the podcast. Because I want to speak to real artists out there like you, Kim, that care that have um, that have something to say, that stand for something, that believe in something that is right and pure and humanistic. And, and it seems like you've tried your whole life to do that same thing. And I want to say thank you for doing it and even spending the time and giving everyone a word, your music, uh, and everything else that you've done for us. Thanks for keeping that alive, that spirit. And in the words of a wonderful band, Verbal Assault, uh, <laughs> more than music. Yes. Kim, it's more than music. Kim, thank, thank you, you so much. Folks, Kim Kanagan from... Share. From Spark Marker and many of the other stuff that he mentioned this evening... Please check all this stuff out. I'm sure you could find it somewhere on the interwebs. And uh, uh, keep in touch, Kim. All right? Yeah. And if people want to find out about Spark Marker, I think it's on vinyl on Indecision Records that got repressed. Awesome. I don't know, three ago. Good. So if people want a copy of that, uh, go Google Indecision Records. And uh, uh, the last band I was in was called San Angeles. Okay. Uh, some of the oh, members... Yeah. Uh, Undertow, Spark Marker, and Pelican, oddly enough. So uh, check it out. Will do. Kim, again, thank you so much. I'm so glad you're feeling better. I'm sorry you were feeling bad and we didn't have a chance to talk before, but again, I'm glad you're feeling better. Uh, Thank you. Best positive universal vibes that I could send your way, my friend. Uh, I consider you a universal brother. Thank you so much. Um, this means a lot to me. And when I told people I was interviewing you, 
most of the people said, wow. Like, <laughs> they were like, what? And I'm like, yeah, dude, for real. Sparkmarker, it's happening, finally. And uh, you made it happen, and I'm so glad you decided to share it with us. And I hope this ended up being what you it, – it, 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 I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you had uh, just as much of a, a real humanistic and, and wonderful sharing time that I had. And, uh, again, thank you for everything. Thank you for sharing with all of us. And the best part of this is that this stuff is going to be in the ether forever. And uh, that's the most important thing. Awesome. I feel it all. Good energy vibes, man. Thank you. Right, you have Kenny. a good night. You too, man. Cheers. I'll be talking bye. to you soon, all right? Cheers. Definitely. Peace. Okay, bye. Folks, that was Kim Kinnikin from Sparkmarker. Uh, just spent one of my longest podcast times out there. Uh... It was amazing. I'm stoked. <laughs> so stoked. And uh, Kim, you're the shit. Literally. Uh, my heart goes out to you in every way, shape, or form. Uh, best wishes. And I'll be talking to you soon. Take care. You guys, have a great night. Deuces. The GOAT.